0: How can you be part of a religious community that's straight up just a bunch of Sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold you. The church seems to be stuck no in their ways when the rest of the question is,
1: why are they so obsessed they with the question? They keep trying to give answers, would but they don't even be a know part the questions we're asking. The as church as is well the most too. vocal political voice church. against immigration. Some churches still don't the want to claim that worship is the actual deliverance. How can your story be good that when too long? The church seems to be stuck in your ways the rest of the like, culture how is is that? Actually
0: It seems like so much of the church's voices are being a good American, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, <sighs> disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world.
1: <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy, and today our guest is Gideon Sang. For the last 25 years, Gideon has served as a spiritual guide and leadership consultant in Toronto, Chicago, Detroit, and Austin, where he currently is still. He's consulted on creating organizations, leading teams, and guiding creatives toward human flourishing. And Gideon believes that human flourishing is our individual path we create from the bottomless well of our soul. Gideon has also contributed as a photographer and writer to the Texas Rivers issue of Wild Sam. He recently authored 40 Days of Being a Seven from Suzanne Stabile's series of books on the Enneagram and has a forthcoming book called Irreligious Spirituality, which is a guide for spiritual inquiry for the irreligious. And you can keep up with what Gideon's doing and get more of a feel and a vibe for the work he's entering into and beginning right now at his website, GideonSang.com. I could go on more about, about how I first got introduced to him, but I would prefer to for him to start speaking. So Gideon, first, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally today and with the listeners as well.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure, Kevin. It's good to be here. Yeah,
1: if we start... It would be good if you could introduce yourself to the people a bit more personally. Like if we just zoomed out a bit, what are some of the bigger picture movements of your life when it comes to your relationship with faith, when it comes to your vocational life, when it comes to your own spiritual path that helps people make sense of where you are today? Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a big question. Well, you were born in Canada, right? Born in Canada, I was the middle son of immigrants. My father was a refugee from China. My mom, kind of like a well-to-do uh, upper class in Hong Kong, quite urban, very developed. And so I'm going way back. So his family, my father's family, they were middle class father was a doctor. And when the Mao regime took over in 49, they confiscated land. They moved them from a middle-class townhome in a city out to a pig farm, just some land. And so that was completely disruptive, super traumatic. And, you know, he found his way, you know, he fucking fought And made it to Hong Kong on foot. You know, he would escape at night. He would dig up old gravestones to sleep in. Mm. He knew he had a father and brother in Hong Kong. He made it out. And just by word of mouth, (laughs) found him in two days. Mm. So that backstory to me is important. Because he came from that upbringing. My mother came from a very patriarchal family where she, because she was a young girl, she was subhuman. So her brother would abuse her like beat her. So both pretty traumatic backgrounds. Mm. And I think because of that, they really found an external solidarity Mm. that they didn't have in their upbringing there wasn't a secure attachment. And so they really hung on to fundamentalism. Mm. Like it's the only skeleton they have in life. Mm. And I think that's true for a lot of folks who are drawn to religion, people who come from fundamentalist backgrounds. Like I have compassion for that actually. Mm. You know, the world is overwhelming, it's terrifying. And so this rigid system with black and white rules, Mm. It's like a you know safety blanket. Huh? Mm. So all that to say, that's what I grew up in. Mm. And there was always in me just this deep, deep curiosity and wonder. But all I knew was that small system. Mm. So it took me a while to grow out of it, you know. You fast forward, I'm, um, you know, in high school, going to college. I'm a political science major, liberal arts. I graduated. I was good at reading books and being unemployed. <laughs> um, went off in search of meaning, kind of still within this rigid system. So I thought a divinity school would be um, a good place.
2: Mm.
0: And I've always known of divinity schools because, um, you know, I grew up in that world. Mm -hmm. My dad actually is a pastor. That's probably a good reference. Wow. Which is funny because my girlfriend now didn't grow up with any faith. Mm. And she hears divinity school and she, she thinks. She's like, did you learn any spells? That sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And then I actually pastored for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And that whole journey was really me pursuing truth, pursuing the divine mystery wonder up until probably two years ago. I kind of got out. Like Mm. I I fully shook that exoskeleton. Mm. So the question I've had recently is like, why did it fucking take me that long? Interesting. You know, I'm 47 now, and that that drive, that searching, even you know, trying to birth a spiritual community, a church. The first year, I called it an ir- irreligious community mm. for folks who were spiritually interested, but I was still trying to do it under this umbrella. Does that make sense? Mm. So, I've gone through, you know, uh, tectonic change in the last few Mm. years. And some of the outgrowing of my old life still shows up in painful ways. Mm. Interesting. And it happened this week. And it still has to do with my family of origin and stuff. And so, like, two nights ago, I was triggered. I was angry i was angry at myself for being angry mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. i i had shame because i wasn't allowing someone else close to me to have their own emotion mm-hmm. i was letting theirs bleed on to me and you know i just had i had a night of, of being messily human just two nights ago mm. and the next day i went to see you know as things often line up, went to see my therapist. And I do this form of therapy called internal family systems, Mm. which you're kind of going back to younger selves to kind of heal. Which, by
1: the way, just first of all, the way you're telling the story is amazing. So this is already so good. And it's anticipating so many questions I have, which is awesome. And when you mention family systems and where I'm at, my wife, so we're in Honolulu and my wife has her own practice out here. So she's an MFT. So basically I'm in her, this is our bedroom from COVID, but this is her office. So family systems, it's all, there's many other people who talk about family systems on this computer right here, but it's just using my wife saying stuff to them. So yeah, already that. so good, man. Keep going.
0: So a couple memories surfaced. One was, it wasn't a memory. It was a feeling. I'm just being like five or six, mm. skinning my knee, and crying, I'm five years old, you know, <laughs> and was told that that emotion is not welcome, mm. stop crying, be tough. So fast forward two nights ago, I was angry at myself for not being tough enough. And then the other one, which answers your actual original question, or the question I have, too, in my spiritual journey. You know, why did it take me so long? I guess there's two answers. One is that's just my journey. Mm -hmm. That just is. That simply is. And the second was, you know, I have memories of in middle school without going too much into it. I think the, you know, I love my parents. They did the best they could. The model of parenting was, it's a little bit like training a horse, like learning how to ride a horse. I think that's that generation of parenting to break their spirit so that they'll go wherever you want them to go. And we moved to Hong Kong for a couple of years when I was in middle school. And I remember being suicidal. Or just having suicidal thoughts. And I thought I was like, oh, probably everyone in middle school has that. <laughs> Until I started sharing that story, like, uh, no, I didn't feel suicidal in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I think, the the life force, the part of me that was trying to come alive mm. outside of this rigid structure. And it was, it was beat. It was like beat down. Mm. And so I think my journey, I wandered a lot with within kind of pretty rigid religious structures. Mm. And then it took a painful journey. It took a divorce Mm. um, and it took being a spiritual leader in a community, in a church, Mm -hmm. Um, I don't recommend being divorced while you're leading a spiritual community. Mm. Mm. It was painful. But it was the last piece that I needed Mm. just just to get me into my life, come alive. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, no, that is, I
1: mean, I asked that story. I asked that question to begin with for a lot of people and that was a, uh, I feel like I could already sense a collective people listening in of I could have just never asked you a question again and you could have kept going. But that was, I don't know, you can feel that journey. I think there's so much of it where my experience was probably more similar to your girlfriend's now where I didn't grow up in the church. So I didn't have the baggage i didn't have a reactionary sense i wasn't really reacting strongly to any sort of fundamentalist tradition i had a much different experience where i had my own existential crisis at 16 17 and seeing and experiencing mushrooms as a guide had this spontaneous awakening moment at 18 that gave birth to everything else that came after you know so my experience was the beginning with no guides no externals my spirituality is intrinsic my spirituality is an inner drive not an external force asking me to do things it was always an invitation and a thirst and then when i first went to a bible college when i was in my early 20s because i felt some sense of calling to be a pastor and a guide and i didn't know what that meant it was like my experience is out here and then i get to learn it's all here and then the the it takes a little bit of time where i'm like okay it's actually out here but, like when you describe the 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 comfort and security of the fundamentalism and the rigid traditions for people coming out of trauma, people with a shaky sense of self or whatever those things are, I think for me, it was like that was helpful for two years, and then I had to trust that drive that kept calling me beyond that, you know, so I think I do see that it, it's a it's a much different thing i want I want to jump ahead. Why? This is a question I ask people when you describe the messy thing from two nights ago. Why is it so hard for us to just let others be? And I'm sure that, I'm sure with your wisdom and with your ability to see that you have you do that. You know how to self-regulate, you know how to differentiate, let another person be, right? But in those moments, sometimes to hold that space and just let another person feel, suffer, hurt, or whatever it is, what is it, what is, what is it within us that is, makes it so hard to just let another person be, especially when they're suffering or making decisions that perhaps we wouldn't make? What is that impediment, that thing within us that makes it so difficult?
0: I can probably speak more specifically to two nights ago. That younger dude in me, mm. that 13 year old Gideon, um, was ready for a visit. Mm. And, you know, family has a way because mm. they are around, um, Yeah. And so I was resisting something that was surfacing to be healed. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So none of my, none of my tools and my tricks work. That's what mm. bothered me. Mm. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I know how to fucking do this. Why isn't this working? Mm. Um, and it's not, sometimes it's beyond those tools And the boundaries when some there's a part of me that's ready to be healed. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes, I
1: think the individual experience so often is an invitation to the illusion or the wound, right? It's it's not like we're angry and then we're angry at ourselves for being angry. There's this complex thing, but there's also the individual experience. Let's just say I'm sitting with my partner, she's suffering, something within me wants to explain it away, wants to tell her why she shouldn't feel this or whatever it is. But it's also like that individual experience oftentimes invites us to these broader illusions of the thing I actually have to accept is like the people you love are going to suffer. And the people you love are you going to hurt, or it's resurfacing, resurfacing wounds where it's like it's not really about you. It's actually about this broader thing that I still have to come to terms with, overcome, or transcend within me. So we think we're resisting the thing, but it's actually this broader thing that it's requiring us to see and face. That oftentimes like creates that rub. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah. As you as you. Get older, and you talk about belief systems, exoskeletons, right we can talk about the relationship between like extrinsic like spirituality, the external things intrinsic, the drive, the direct experience, and all that i'm jumping ahead just because of some of the unique things you said in your story. If we think about there's many different ways to say this the relationship between waking up and growing up. The relationship between spiritual experience, this direct knowing or being known of the divine mystery in God, spiritual intelligence now, what do we believe about it? As we keep growing or as you keep growing and evolving through the uniqueness of your own journey, how does that relationship change between waking up and growing up, between experience and what you believe about things? Because oftentimes I feel like in the beginning stages of our faith, your faith is this is what I believe. These are my belief systems. And as long as it's held together, I feel a sense of security. I feel a sense of at home, belonging, or whatever, or, or approval of the community, as long as I adhere to those. And, and then there. Aspirational. Mm, aspirational. I like that. But then there's this other, especially if, if we talk about the mystics, there is a direct. Knowing, right? There is the experience. There is an immediacy in the heart of a uh, weaving into the, into the depths of who we are. How does that relationship change for you or for humanity as we evolve and grow from beliefs to experience? Like, where are you at with that? What does that relationship feel like? And does is it different from when you were younger?
0: It is different, uh, vastly different. It also feels developmentally appropriate. Mm -hmm. So I'm a cerebral person. And so everything filtered through my head, Mm -hmm. including feelings. Mm -hmm. Like I would go, I think I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <that's> yeah. <laughs> and then faith were primarily thoughts and mm-hmm. beliefs mm-hmm. and I, you know I have compassion for that I, I just think that's just where I was
2: mm-hmm.
0: in my 20s and 30s that's mm-hmm. as far as I could go and that's, that's okay where you are is always where you're at Mm. and it's okay Mm. so the journey for me and it seems like is common at some point life will interrupt you you know I I, I don't know anyone who gets a pass Mm. And those interruptions. They're invitations. Hmm.
1: That's how you know Gideon was a pastor for so long is those good little turns of the phrase and those one liners right there. You know, anytime you get the interruptions or invitations, that's the, the great experience of the words over years, man. It's so good. <laughs>
0: And you don't choose them because they're too hard, you know. Mm. They'll choose you. Mm. And in those moments, you either surrender to that or you double down. Mm. And so for me, I had, you know, invitations along the way. And that's why I do think it is developmental a little bit. Hmm. I was just younger and had more energy Mm -hmm. and I needed to exhaust this version of myself. Interesting. You know, and it came to a point where it wasn't that I was smart enough, wise enough, had courageous enough to surrender. I was just, I was done. I had (laughs) nothing left. Hmm. You know, and so, what's interesting to me is because I'm cerebral, my subconscious would draw me to these things. Mm. And I would talk about it like I knew it. <laughs> I would just talk about it because I was interested in mm. it. So, you know, Wendell Berry has that one phrase it's the impeded stream that sings. Mm. When a stream is impeded, that's when the song comes. I quoted that line for ten years before I allowed my impediment to sing. Mm. You know, um, there's a book, um, James Hollis. It's called Middle Passage. He's a, very, he's a Jungian writer.
2: Mm.
0: And he talks about how you know, middle age. It's just. It's another developmental stage, really important, actually. Mm. Like, it's your second puberty. Mm. So because as adults, it looks messy, we judge it. Mm. So we shame it. We call it midlife crisis. So each each one of these developmental stages, it's interesting. We shame the person going through it. So for a two-year-old, it's so healthy to learn – to push away from mom and dad and we go they're terrible. They're mm. terrible twos. <laughs> yeah. When you're going through puberty, you're a teenager, right? We call them rebellious, we call them, you know, they're just developmental stages. Mm. So I remember reading this James Hollis again like 10 years ago, middle passage. I remember like, ah, oh, I'm probably going through mine. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> A year before my divorce, I got it tattooed on my chest. Wow. It was like my subconscious was putting it onto my body to give me the courage to go through it. Wow. I don't wish what I went through upon anyone. It's brutal. Hmm. And I wish the grace of what I've gone through upon it. Mm. Mm.
1: So, with that, which is so well said, the interruptions as invitations, the the way in which those interruptions and the the unique form of suffering that is present within that and how we in in the interruptions and how we relate to them kind of chooses us and finds us the middle passage, the impediments just on the other side of that. As you start to see light, as you experience the the lighter, the sense of lightness on the other side or the grace that carries you through, to go back even more specifically, how does... Some,
0: some might say, Kevin, excuse me to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, some yeah. might say, uh, born again.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like no. one of
0: the deepest, truest life experiences, we turned into tribal Chick-fil-A bullshit. Mm. Mm. That's what these myths are telling us. That's what these stories, they're pointing to coming alive and we turn it into tribalism. So good.
1: So then to, 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 to reclaim or to use appropriately the depth and profundity of that phrase you just said about being born again, as you're born again, after that, how now is your relationship with your beliefs and and primary direct experience like different you know when you're young developmentally your faith is like my belief systems and maybe once in a while i'll like raise my hands and shed a tear for jesus and as time goes on there's this sometimes i change my beliefs which is okay some but the real radical shift in like the transformation of consciousness is not just I changed my beliefs. It's the very I that has these beliefs has been changed and feels and relates and holds the beliefs differently. And the experience, the direct, the knowing, the depth of that becomes a whole different foundation for us. Can you speak to that a little bit on the other side of that being born again, how that shifted compared to fundamentalist versions of the faith. I was a pastor for this long. I'm going to divinity school, not like not learning spells, but just studying theology or wherever we're at. Has that, can you feel that like difference and how that right now making sense of that on your journey? Hmm.
0: So I spent uh, all of August in Brooklyn. Hmm. That's where my girlfriend is from lived for 10 years. And I've visited New York many times and, you know, I've never stayed that long before, especially with someone who's, that's home, you know? And so I was like, you know, wonder what, you know, I'm open to falling in love with it. And after a week I was like, I'm out. I can't, it's just, it's too much. Mm. Um, I describe it as being waterboarded by sound. Mm. There's no respite. (laughs) Just window unit air conditioning, sirens, cars—just like constant. So I would meet people in New York, and they'd be like, "Hey, where are you from?" Like, "Oh, I'm from Austin." And then they they kept talking about quality of life. Like, Mm. oh, man, quality of life. You know, oh, I hear the quality of life. So good, that quality of life. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. No one in Austin talks about quality of life.
2: Mm.
0: So often the thing we talk so much about is the thing we don't have. Mm Mm-hmm. so are you familiar you're probably familiar with Mm wabi-sabi it's like a philosophy of life ceremony ritual and design out of Mm. japan so it's now probably on the forefront of culture more known from a design standpoint but it's much deeper than that
1: by the way i'm gonna interrupt if larry if my good friend larry is listening in I feel like you may have told me this. So if when Gideon's telling me about this, just know you may have told me, so please forgive me for forgetting. <laughs> Go ahead.
0: <laughs> so it's existed in Japan for centuries. Hmm. But they didn't name it. No one named it. And then um, this one guy, I have the book here, actually. Leonard Koren has a couple books. Mm. Um, I believe, I could be wrong on this detail. It's either him, if not him, someone from the West moved there, lived there, and then named it. Mm. Which is helpful because it was an introduction to people who didn't. So you need mm. the name, right? Sure. So it's like going from a life and a faith where I was naming everything. Mm. I was trying to name the nameless. Mm. I was trying to give words that are always too small Mm. to the divine, Mm. to the transcendent. And it's okay. I think it's helpful that we need words. Mm. And I would say my... Faith, my spirituality at its best, not always, is nameless Mm. and experiential. Mm. And then when I have a conversation like this, Mm. we give words and that's okay. That's how Mm. we interact with each other. Where I think for most of my life, I was naming something I didn't know, had an experience, didn't have. Mm. And then now it feels a bit like the opposite. Does that make mm. sense?
1: So good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And that is truly like when you use that, you know, powerful imagery early on of like tectonic shifts, like that is absolutely a shift when it comes to just, our everyday simple sense of just being, you know, and how we move and navigate and how we use our words and how we don't and what, how language serves us and how it doesn't, you know, and how beliefs the role, even, even concrete beliefs have as opposed to the experiential and the the knowing or the unknowing. I remember this story. I was 24 and I was, I lived, my wife and I lived in, Orange County, like in Costa Mesa for like five years after we got married out here in Hawaii before we moved back. And I was going on a walk one night and I was smoking a Black and Mild, which for me was like nostalgic for like being a kid around the neighborhood. And it was just like, you know, a a walk to nowhere, a contemplative walk. It doesn't have a purpose other than just simply being. And I remember as I was walking, I had this, you know, internal dialogue in my head as, as I was just walking. And I said, you know, it's one of those moments where you just know. And another voice said, know what? And the first voice said, I don't know, but you just do. (laughs) And that's always, you know, stayed with me in capturing of that primary experience that actually exists beyond, beneath, and before whatever beliefs we say we have after or however we name that which in the moment, like you said, so well, it is actually nameless. So yeah, I think that's what I was getting at. And you described it so well of how your relationship with the naming changes over the years. And I think that's, that's so good. You know, I want to say this growth is a good thing change is a good thing evolving is a good thing right there's many ways that we can think about that moving from ethnocentric to seeing humanity as equal or seeing the cosmos with a sense of oneness that's a good thing moving from the simple views of black and white like like you described earlier right or wrong good or bad to more complex views of nuance and and uh and mystery is a good thing moving from being homophobic to loving everybody for who they are. These, these are good movements, right? And while growth, and I think you've spoken to this already a few times when you talk about compassion on people who are in places where developmentally you would say you no longer are, while growth is a good thing, you know, being angry, judgmental, frustrated, or even disgusted with those that you see in places perhaps you once were and aren't anymore, that's not a good thing. And not only does it affect our relationships negatively, it affects our own ability to be present, to have joy, to have peace. And when you, so when you speak of compassion on people, what would you say to people who are growing and evolving in their own ways in whatever stages they're at, but still struggling with the resentment, the frustration and that oppositional energy toward what they would see as old ways of seeing? You know, what is, what are some of the key parts within us we need to do to move through that passage where we can keep growing without those, without that other energy towards it, which is where I'm assuming how that compassion you describe is born out of.
0: Yeah. And I would just say here, you know, full disclosure, I probably speak of that compassion for myself and for those before me. (laughs) aspirationally
1: I can get it was like
0: the tattoo on the chest right there (laughs) I I I can speak of it occasionally I am able to practice that's why
1: the next time Gideon posts if you follow him on Instagram it'll it'll be some sort of compassion thing you'd be like he's he he knows he's a pro he's approaching even a greater experience of it
0: right right um yeah, I think it's, I'm only able to be compassionate towards others to the capacity that I'm able to be compassionate with myself. Mm. And so when I'm not able to, there's just parts of me still that I'm resisting or unkind to, you know? Mm. Um, you know, do you know Neil Brennan, the comedian? Yeah. He started, uh, he started The Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle.
2: Hmm.
0: and I heard him talk about his inner critic mm. and he was like if you met someone who said those words you wouldn't befriend them you'd fucking punch him in the face like, <laughs> it's the nastiest you don't even meet people that mean <laughs> you know and so I've named mine I, I call him Tazzy The mm-hmm. Tasmanian devil Hmm. And and trying to befriend Tazzy, you know. Mm-hmm. as he's trying to protect me for a long mm-hmm. time, trying to keep mm-hmm. me safe.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: hard though. Mm-hmm. And so my work, I feel like, is more within and when I'm able to heal parts of those myself, when I'm able to offer compassion to those parts, when I'm able to be with Tazzy and Tazzy's not driving. Mm. Tazzy's still in the car, hopefully in the back seat. Mm. And it's those moments then. I have compassion to give. Mm. I've been there. I know mm. what that's like. Mm. You know, we can only operate at a level of consciousness and that's that's just it. No one that there's really nothing to forgive even when when you understand that. That's mm. that's all we are. Mm.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, uh, I mean, I think all, I think even that picture, the last, you know, all 35 ish minutes from your story to those first answers, I think gives the listener such a good sense of who you are and where, even, even with those limitations, obviously, but a good sense and a feel of who you are and where you are and, you know, and I'm I'm grateful for that. Cause I think that bigger picture vision is just so helpful. You know, even me too. Like I reach out to people I want to talk to where if I reach out to them without a podcast, it would be weird to be like, hey, you want to talk for an hour, but we never met. Like, so obviously I, I do this too, because I enjoy hearing all of that too. And I, and I resonate with it. And I just, I can feel like the sort of energy of it as a whole and kind of where you're at, which just seems like such a good thing. So I want to talk about, you know, some of the things I see in your website, GideonSang.com, which is a relatively new website, um, I think, right? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a couple things on there and which expresses, I think, some of how your vocation, some of your life, your natural desire to be a guide for others is sort of continuing into a new form right now. Uh, At least that's how I read it, you know, from a distance, which I think is a great thing. And, you know, one of the things you say on the, on the website says, instead of outsourcing our personal and spiritual growth to an external structure, how can we access discernment within all of us to flourish spiritually? And you ask the question, do we have a plan for our own human flourishing? Why, why are these such important questions right now for the, you know, the, Irreligious, spiritual people, the spiritually curious, and for those desiring healing and wholeness in their own life. Why, for, for you, are these questions sort of helping us kind of point us forward towards new possibilities?
0: I think a lot of it comes from, you know, 20 some years of working within institutions. And in institutions, because of scale, mm. economic viability just inevitably becomes the horse. Mm. And then you've got the buggy behind it, which is spirituality. Mm. Inherent within that design, then, your goal is to keep people, not to free people. Mm. And so, if you have a school that's trying to keep someone in the school forever, it's a bad school. I would even say if there's a therapist who's trying to keep you forever, mm. not a great therapist. Mm. And I would just bump up against my idealism and then my current reality. Mm-hmm. The idealism of really wanting to help people taste mm-hmm. the beauty of being alive. Of feeling connected, not disconnected from each other and the world we live in. You know, at the heart, that's what I, that's why I was doing it, you know?
1: Love it. And you just anticipated my next question too, by the way. So that was so good.
0: And then I was leading an organization, Mm. you know, hundreds of volunteers, staff, just you're, you're managing. Mm. And so when I left that, I left because of an uncomfortable situation. You know, the short of it is when you lead an institution, I knew this. Part of my job was to get projected onto, Hmm. which I don't recommend, by the way. Good times.
1: Sometimes when I tell people about, like, those types of dynamics, which it doesn't only happen in pastoring, but pastoring is like a convergence and a clusterfuck of like all these different hard parts of the startup, the therapist, the this, the emotional complexity, the dual relationships, like all these different things converge into this crazy thing where I'm like, it's like what you said, you're like, you have moments where you're doing that, where you're like, I really wouldn't wish this upon anyone
0: in the the toughest moments. Yeah. And upon anyone, yeah. Mm. yeah and so it all worked as long as I wasn't human Mm.
1: dude why are you literally anticipating even more of my questions please keep going
0: (laughs) and life runs its course I ran out of solutions and I became human and it wasn't the entire organization. Most of the folks there are very kind, very generous, but sure. a handful. It's like the handful of people that represent the institution. Does that make sense? It's mm-hmm. not representative of the community. Gotcha. It's just a handful. Mm-hmm. But the moment I became human, it was like fuck you. <laughs> yeah. The system the system didn't work anymore. Mm. (laughs) the reality is I probably was needing to move on five years earlier and I, I I own it. I didn't have the courage Mm. to do so because of pain, the pain point, I've never quit anything in my life before. Wow. And I walked away with like nothing. Wow. I didn't know what was next. I've, I haven't had a resume since I was like 20 years old. <laughs> and I wouldn't have chose it. But it ended up being, you know, more than a year of negative space. mm. I know it sounds, you know, if I describe like, oh, I just had a year where I didn't do much. Most people are like, that's, that's amazing. Mm. It's uncomfortable. Mm. You know, there's a lot of, who am I? Mm. What is life? Mm. What is this universe? Mm. Do I have a place in it? Did I waste 20 years? And over that time in that negative space, you know, I just asked, what do I love? Mm. What is my voice Mm. in this world? And there was so much of the bullshit that came with what I did before. There's so much that's also lovely, many beautiful sure. people. But what I loved the most was having spiritual conversations with people who were not religious mm-hmm. or didn't even realize it was spiritual conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, I'm, I love that. And then I had to ask, does the world need that? Mm. (laughs) I didn't know. Mm. Yeah. And so putting myself out there, again, I had always outsourced everything. Mm. I had a vision for this organization. I had this vision for this movement. I really never sat and had a vision for my own life. Wow. And so some of that work now is birthed out of a lot of sitting, a lot of silence. And then when I first started meeting with people, I was was nervous.
2: Mm.
0: I don't know if I know how to do this. (laughs) And it turns out I've done it for over 20 years. Mm. Mm. (laughs) And it's not coming from my mind anymore. Mm. Again, one of those aspirational things I talked about for many years, you know, Martin Buber Mm. and he talks about the space between. Mm. And I talked about the aspirationally, theologically. And now I find if I, if I can sit, and I'm fully with that space in itself is divine. Mm. There's so much wealth and creativity and healing there. Mm. And so, yeah, that's kind of the path. That I
1: took. Yeah, no, that's uh it's funny after you do something i mean not your whole life but forever especially 20 years concretely and then you're returning to essentially you know substantively the same work in terms of the core when you're asking what do i really care about here you know what is really me you know what was just me keeping the thing going but it's 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 funny because the vulnerability of it's so real to return you're like can I do this? Like, can we talk <laughs> and to have that moment? But it's so cool because I see in, in in your journey and sense that some of the, the challenges, the pains that you describe through that middle passage in a universal sense, but just specifically right now from people, leaders transitioning from congregational life, I feel like, you and other people like you, even some who I know personally, are kind of possibly, and I don't want to put that pressure on you, but like for for some people, etching out new grooves and new possibilities for a lot of people who have been in congregational life and pastoral life who want to reclaim their life, want to fully embrace who they are, who intuitively know that means I probably will no longer be a part of the thing as much as I love it and have compassion on it when I'm at my best. But know that like the same energy, the same heart and the same tools that you've kind of taken along the way that allow you to do that still allow you to like, I always think pastors can do so much, you know, if they've done it well. I mean, you talk about like, on your website, when you you use that phrase of like, how do we create from, I think it's like the bottomless well of our soul, like in terms of creating and organizing and being present and planning talks, I'm like, you really like the value that someone like you or others have to bring to individuals, organizations is really almost like, you can't even quantify it, you know? So there's so much there. Um, And I think a part of, The landscape of uh, trends in the church, people leaving, people not going back. I think pastors waking up to these profound, do I like what I'm doing? Do I have joy? Have I, like you said, tasted that which I keep naming for others so poetically and beautiful every damn week, you know, all the time. And I think the courage to go through that year, which no one could know what it was like, you know, in that year, like you said of negative space, right? That liminal unknowing in between, but to come out, I I mean, that, that's one of the reasons, like what I said, where I'm fascinated and finding your journey so good is I think there is an etching out of a way for people who a lot of people who are looking for a way out for their own life, just trying to save their own life, you know, trying to taste a little bit of what they've been working for, for the sake of others for so long um, I want to return to, because you anticipated the whole, if I'm human here, that's the one no for, for us. That's a no for me. What, with, with all of your experience, what is it about? It could be just a tribalistic sense of religion. It could be churches specifically. It could be our culture. But what, what makes it so hard for the pastor to be fully human? What about that is dangerous or a threat to people? Like, what is, why is that such a, it's not on the individual. There's a, there's a culture and a system in place that seems to make that virtually impossible for so many people. And I think we're seeing that at a pretty collective level in, in ways right now. So can you speak to that a bit?
0: So I'd like to own that part of the story. Mm that's my own journey of pretending not to be here mm. i learned that at a young age mm. and then i started the church i built the system mm.
1: by the way gideons mature enough to own that which i love but i'm an, i'm the one to say i think on a collective level that's also so go ahead
0: <laughs> and i also yeah I, I also was recreating something that was there as well but sure. it felt it felt familiar mm. you know whatever dysfunction you grew up with oftentimes you recreate it as an adult because it's familiar.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that was rewarded to not be human. Mm. And I was like, i are going to make a fucking profession out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it comes from. Yeah. I think it's deeply human. Mm. You know, I think religion has a way of doubling down. But it's not that different. You know, like, we don't have time to go into the left. Left is fundamentalism, which is cancel culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a similar perfectionism because we are not able to accept our imperfections. I am not. And so whatever is internal, it was my own inability to be human. And I created a system that didn't allow for my imperfections. And I thought I had the energy and the zeal to keep not being human, to be a saint, as some would say. Um, And I would say that's... In every human system, because it's deeply a part of our experience. And then you have the rare ones who come alive. With all of their light and their shadows. Um, And they pointed the way for me, you know, I would read of them. And I was like, is that, is that possible? Can that be, you know? And I think part of what I love about my work now like i I get to come alongside people who are wanting to come alive and to witness it's it's deeply beautiful and it it's it really is such an honor
1: yeah, yeah and and I love just the language of. I mean, that right there coming alongside of people who want to come alive. And that's again where I see the natural continuity, p- perhaps from a deeper place, from a more embodied place, from a more integrating the parts of us, you know, into one thing place, you know, which I assume seems to be like a, a, a really important part of your journey. But it's just a beautiful way to describe even for those who are pastoring in congregations who can connect with the substance of what they're doing without the horse, you know, being the thing that drives the whole thing where the substance is like, what happens in the end when I'm tired, you know, as opposed to like the energy being there and, you know, seeing the continuity of it is just, is again, like it's just, I think it shows so many, it shows a path forward for, for so many people. And it's just beautiful when you actually connect with the substance of what we do, you know, and why we do what we do. You're like, this is actually quite amazing. Even that, that divine space in between, you know, and the ability to be present to that. When, when we have the capacity to sit with that and let it, you know, envelop us and just rest in a simple feeling, you're like, this, this, this can be when you say like the people who have come alive showed you the way. You're like, there's moments like this, this can just be it. You know, like this thing, whatever it is, and oh man, I love that. Uh, here, here, here's a, for my last question. You know, your work is driven by the assumption that people can change, that life can be different, that people can come alive. Right? We could say it in all kinds of ways. I don't think you would, you know, spend your energy doing what you do if if that wasn't the case. So when you, and you touched on this a bit, but when you look at people around you, you know, college kids getting ready for vocational and relational journeys, parents of young families, creatives making away, people perhaps who are around a middle passage and feeling their way through the dark. What is that core energy, that core desire in you where you think like, this is what I want for you. Like, this is what I hope for you and then as a guide say and i will commit like you said to come alongside of you and do as much as i can as far as you allow me to help guide you into like what is that thing that's driving you for that kind of unique and strange and weird and amazing life and thing you're
0: doing so are you asking what the motivation
1: Yeah, like when you, you when you look at the people who you grow to care about, the people you sit with, it's like what is that driving force of like, man, I just want like when you say I want people to come alive, I want people to know that they're okay, I want people to trust that perhaps in the midst of the chaos this is actually a safe and loving and kind universe. Like what what is that drive, you know?
0: Yeah, it's simply you know, what's the last meal you had that blew your mind? Mm. You just want someone else to taste it. Mm. And when I finally got to live and experience the thing I was aspirationally talking about for so long. Mm. I can't think of like what what else mm. than to come alive and to find your life and to trust that you can just be a tree and you find your soil mm. and nourishment comes. Mm. You know, I want that for everyone. Mm. I feel so deeply, deeply graceful and grateful that I somehow, through chaos, through pain, touch something, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah, it's, I think it's enough. Yeah so
1: so good man i i loved our time together and for for people listening in gideon the the last book he wrote 40 days of being a seven so for those of you who are tuned in familiar with the enneagram there was you know a different person in the series wrote a book for each number he wrote the one about being a seven so one if you're interested in gideon at all after this and the things that he's talking about you know resonate with you and you want to hear more That's a great book for everyone, especially if you are a seven. And I can't imagine even more, you know, how much that would speak to you. His forthcoming book, which doesn't have a date yet, but you can follow along with irreligious spirituality, like it says on the site, I think will, I assume, be much of the the feeling of this conversation in a much uh, deeper and more expansive way, which would be amazing. His website, gideonsang.com, speaks of the work he's doing now, his continuing desire to simply be of service and, and guide people to taste that which, you know, he knows and is grounded in and I, there's ways to reach out on there. There's ways to contact. I assume even from people in our in, in our increasingly Zoom and digital age, you know, not even present. If you're interested in connecting with him, talking further, knowing even more how he goes about providing that guidance, there's places on the website to reach out to him. So please do that, and I look forward to whenever more writing comes out. You know, to stay in touch about that. And yeah, man, thank you so much for for doing this. I think the I think people listening in will will love it. And also for me, just wanting to reach out and connect, man, I I really enjoyed this time a lot.
0: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. That was fun. Okay.